Uh, our brother Cody McCoy was our speaker for the weekend and delivered several wonderful lessons. If you haven't had a chance to meet the McCoy family, they're a blessing to us. We already have a number of wonderful Bible class teachers and, and uh, teachers and, and speakers in the congregation here that can and preach and teach at any time, and it's great to add another uh, individual into that category that, that is willing to help and assist in that way. Not many places can, have, can host their own retreat speaker, if you will, and certainly Cody provided a wonderful uh, opportunity for opportunity for learning in that regard. also want to make mention of this weekend, um, Chip and Aaron made sure to commend the volunteers that came out and helped uh, to help the uh, young people as, as we were there to help to uh, encourage them and to help them to uh, have a good time. But I did want to make mention of the fact that they have done a wonderful job this summer already uh, in transitioning into this role of youth deacon. Uh, both of them have taken the responsibility that, that Kevin and, and Corey have had for so long. And anytime that there is a period of transition, sometimes there can be grumblings and complainings and, and uh, individuals that might have something to say about ways that people do things differently. And, and it's a testament to what they have done so far this year uh, in order to bring about such a great program and to continue allowing it to be what it has been in the years uh, past. Also want to make mention of this upcoming weekend, we're going to have our missionary summit. Perhaps you hadn't heard about it. Maybe uh, you haven't been listening, uh, but there is a lot that's going to be happening this coming weekend. Our, our missionaries are going to be flying in on Wednesday evening and uh, there's going to be lots taking place. You have an opportunity to serve our missionaries this coming weekend. On Thursday and Friday night, we're still looking for individuals to host them in their homes, in your homes, for a meal. And so get to know our missionaries. Come and, and learn about them and, and have them in your home. There are some from the States, some from outside of the States, some from Mexico, of course, outside of the States as well. And so there's great opportunity for you to encourage them as well as Saturday to come and listen and learn about what, work, what their work is all about. As well as Sunday being able to worship together, I believe, on Sunday evening, even in a bilingual opportunity. This evening as we begin our lesson, I did want to read an excerpt from an article that I came across recently. And some of you I've, I've shared this article with, and so you might begin to, to roll your eyes because you know what, I, what it is that I'm talking about. But I want to read this, and it, I want to read it because it has really got my wheels turning on something that I personally need to work on, and I think that many of us here maybe struggle with from time to time. The article begins this way. It says, anthropologists have found that the more conflict is culturally condoned, the more boys and men tend to fight, roughhouse, and engage in arguments simply because it feels good. Why, ask the question? Because making fun of or wrestling a friend is easier than telling him you love him, and it sends a version of that same message. Perhaps you've seen that in, in young boys and in, even in men, right? We, we pick on each other, tease each other a little bit, roughhouse, because we don't, we're not so prone to saying the words, I love you, but, but that sends a version of the same message, this article says. It goes on to say this cross-cultural behavior tends to begin in early childhood, affecting how young kids play. This happens all over the world, they say. Girls tend to be more verbal, whereas boys tend to socialize through activities like sports and roughhousing. The tendency to fight for fun doesn't go away as boys grow up. Ritual opposition finds its way into the workplace in the form of verbal opposition, which people can interpret as a threat if they're not accustomed to it. Particularly, he says, for men, it's important to understand that ritual opposition can create communication problems with women and children who they might confuse or unnerve while trying to be friendly. I bring all that up because 
To some degree, I believe that God created men to at least be drawn in, in some regard to a measure of playful jesting. And I even think that's maybe borne out in, in the life of Jesus in the sense that in Mark chapter 3 and verse number 17, that we don't know for sure exactly why Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. We might wonder if he called them that because in, Mark, uh, in Luke chapter 9, we find that he, they were asking Jesus if they wanted them to rain fire down on heaven or ask that fire be rained down from heaven upon the Samaritans because they didn't accept Jesus. And so you can almost hear Jesus kind of ribbing them a little bit by calling them the sons of thunder. Kind of calm down there, sons of thunder. I know that, that you, you are frustrated that they don't want to receive me, but I think that's a little extreme, maybe Jesus said to them and gave them maybe that kind of nickname. Even in our elders' room, when we have elders' meetings, there's times in which our elders rib each other a little bit, believe it or not. At times, Woodrow has ribbed me and, and Ray for being individuals that like to go hunt those poor animals. At times, a number of us have ribbed Woodrow because of his love and affinity for spreadsheets. He is the spreadsheet king. And, and Larry's over there laughing because he, know he knows it's true. And all of the elders, I think at one point or another, since Steve made this gaffe of asking us to silence our car phones before worship service began, uh, have made fun of Steve for that. The point is we all kind of, we like to rib each other a little bit. We're all men and that's, that's something we engage in and, and are drawn towards. And, and what is humor but to maybe laugh at our gaffes and, and laugh even at our own selves sometimes and think those kinds of things are funny. The problem becomes though, when we begin to weaponize that humor, when we begin to weaponize those, those ribs and we try to take it the next step further and we begin to cross a line. And so as we think about that, it's not altogether uncommon for men to actually like to be teased. I know some of you ladies might think that that's just really outlandish to actually suggest that, but sometimes men actually enjoy ribbing each other. It's kind of just a, a game, it's, it's fun, they like that. But there are some very special considerations that I want us to think about from God's word this evening as we think about these things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 11 talks about this idea of encouraging and building one another up. And while though everyone loves a clown, nobody wants to be his best friend. There are some people who, no matter what they say, there always seems to be a joke associated with it. There's always a joke coming out of their mouth. They can never say anything serious. And I want us to think about, first and foremost, that when it comes to joking and jesting and maybe this ritual opposition that we're talking about, as men, as individuals, maybe even as ladies, you engage in some of these things, we need to practice the golden rule. Therefore, whatever men, whatever you would that men do unto you, do you even so also unto them. The golden rule, do to others what you want done to you. And as you think about that, I would ask you, do sometimes you stop and think before making a joke about whether or not this individual will receive this well? Do you know that individual well enough to actually make that joke with them or about them? Or do you already know for a fact that that person will not receive that joke well, and yet you still go on to make the joke? Practicing the golden rule, you know, sometimes I, like, I liken it to this thought process. I, you know, I might take Aaron fishing because I would want someone to take me fishing. 
but you know, she maybe doesn't really want to go fishing. So that's not really practicing the golden rule, taking her fishing, because that's what I would want somebody to do for me. Rather, it's thinking, what would they want done also to them? And so thinking ahead of time, does that person really enjoy, do I know them well enough to actually engage in that with them? Thinking about developing a filter. Some individuals like to joke and jest so much that they never think for one second about what comes out of their mouth. Proverbs chapter 29, verse number 11, the Proverbs writer says, a fool spews or vents out all of his feelings. In other words, there's nothing that he thinks or feels within himself that he does not filter from coming out, but a wise man, goes on to say, quietly holds them back. And so if it is the case that sometimes you always say what you're thinking in the moment, it may be that you need to develop a filter. We also need to regularly self-reflect Regularly self-reflect, why is it that you as an individual might be prone to constantly wanting to jab someone else or tease them about something? Could it be that you are putting them down because you're more desirous of puffing your own self up? In Proverbs chapter 28, verse number 25, the Proverbs writer says, a proud heart stirs up strife, but a wise man follows after God. A proud heart stirs up strife. The idea is, and I know there's a number of ways that a proud heart could do that in stirring up strife, but certainly as we consider our our material for this evening, a proud heart oftentimes is at the root of why you and I jab each other and tease each other because maybe we want to put others down and lift ourselves up in that way and look better before other individuals. So we need to regularly self-reflect, but we also need to understand that there is a line There is a line, and when we cross it, we need to make sure that we apologize. Maybe we are still working on that filter, and maybe every now and then something slips through that filter, and we've crossed the line with them. I'm not saying that we should never jest, that we should never tease for fun and just play with each other a little bit, but there are times when we do cross a line, and we need to start to refine in our minds what that line really is. And then when we do cross it, we need to apologize and make it right. We think about Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that before we worship, before, as we're going, he says to give a gift at the altar. When it's there that I remember that my brother has ought against me, or I have wronged my brother, that I should leave my gift there at the altar and go make it right with him before I worship, before I offer that gift. How often is it maybe that sometimes our worship as a body here in Katy is hindered, is, is reduced in its effectiveness, if you will, because of the fact that we maybe have crossed lines with teasing and jabbing at each other to the point that maybe we're not in unison, we're not in sync, we're not uh, of the same mind when we come together to worship. We need to think about that. But also consider that we need to make sure that we do not repay evil for evil. That's kind of where it begins to cross a line most of the time, right? When someone teases or jabs you, we feel like we got to one-up them, right? We want to say something in return to them. We want to to do better. We want to to really razz them or, or, or to really pay them this evil back for the evil that they have done to us. But consider our Lord and Savior in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, that Jesus, though he suffered, provided an example for us. He suffered for us and provided an example for us, though he committed no sin, nor was deceit in his mouth. Yet when he was reviled, 
He reviled not in return. That's what we want to focus in on there. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to the one who judges righteously. Sometimes we need to evaluate, am I razzing? Am I jabbing back at people because I'm trying to ultimately repay evil for evil? Examine your life and pattern it after our Lord and Savior, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And so some important practical considerations to open our lesson this evening, but let's consider some things that we can add into our life instead of only taking away these things from our life. Consider three Bible words for us to put into practice, and the lesson will be yours. Three Bible words to put into practice. Number one, the word edify. The word edify. The word edify literally means to build up, to build up. In fact, in some cases where if you compare translations, you'll look at one translation, it will say edify, and another it will say to build up. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18, when Peter made that great confession that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God, Jesus responded to him and said, based upon that, upon that statement, I will build my church. That word, that phrase there that we have in our English translations, I will build, is the same word that later on in the New Testament we'll come to find means to edify, to build one another up, to literally help someone to be built up. And so the opposite of that would be to destroy, to tear down. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 10, Paul contrasts what some of the, what he called super apostles were trying to do with what God's given authority to the apostles were actually supposed to be doing. He says, we were given this authority to build up or to edify, not to tear down. You think about Luke chapter 12, verse number 18, in which you have the individual that said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. What we're talking about with regard to edification is the complete opposite of tearing down, destroying, demolishing. The ultimate goal is growth. It's growth. It's improvement and progress in the one that we are trying to edify We want to see them to be growing as Peter wrote his letter to those that he was writing to in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. He had many wonderful things to say to them. And at the end of the book, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal of edification. And so let's consider some ways in which we can edify. And this word is found in these contexts. Number one, truly love others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up. It puffs up. It's that which makes us prideful. But love edifies or love builds up. The idea is when I truly love someone, that's when edification can ultimately then happen. I cannot build someone up if they know that I do not share a love for them and with them. Love will cause me to want to see them to grow, to be built up. And so as we consider 1 Corinthians chapter number eight and verse number one, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, I need to ask the question, if I'm ribbing and razzing someone constantly, is it because I love them? Am I trying to show them love? As we allege that sometimes that's what it's all about. We're just, we're just trying to communicate we love them or do I really love them? And have I evaluated why I'm doing these things? Because to edify, we need to love others. We also need to affirm each other's faithfulness. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter number nine. In Acts chapter number nine, we have the account in which the apostle Paul, or the soon to be apostle Paul, was 
affirmed before other Christians by Barnabas. In Acts chapter number nine, verse 26, begin reading with me. Saul had come to Jerusalem and he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple because he'd been persecuting the church and they were thinking, I'm not sure if we can accept this guy Saul. I mean, I, I know you're saying he's a Christian, but I'm not really sure I believe that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had preached or that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. But I want you to think about before we read verse number 30 is, do you think that Paul was edified when Barnabas defended him, when he built him up, when he defended him before the other apostles? Do you think that that he was encouraged by that and built up by that? I think it was the case. Then ultimately, we read verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And then verse 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. I think that edification has, in a sense, a multiplication effect. That it's a snowball type of effect. That as you edify another individual and they edify you, we begin to edify each other and we are all built up. As opposed to what we're doing when we're tearing each other down and picking at each other, ultimately what we're leading to is destruction. If we're not careful, we begin to cross the line. Consider also that Romans chapter 14, verse number 19, calls us to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. What we might say is that edification's twin sister is being a peacemaker. Paul says to pursue after that which makes for peace and that which is for the mutual upbuilding of each other, the building up, the edification of each other. Sometimes I'm not sure that we can be a peacemaker when all we're doing is tearing each other down and picking at each other. We also need to choose to use refreshing speech instead of corrupt speech. Look at Ephesians chapter four, verses 29 through 32. Again, I'm not saying that every time we tease and and pick at each other just a little bit that we're entering into a sinful state and that we're using corrupt speech, but consider what is said here in Ephesians four, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification or building up that it may impart grace to the hearers. Another translation says for an opportune time or for that which is appropriate basically. That's when we should be edifying one another. When I think about the phrase my dad always told me growing up, there's a time and there's a place, right? There's a time and a place. And we need to make sure that we're choosing refreshing speech the right time, the right place, but rather instead of grieving the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30, verse 31, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So that's how we can edify just some examples, not an exhaustive list, but consider benign, as we might call them, ways in which we tear each other down. Sometimes it's because we like to pull pranks. We like to pull pranks. At Peach Valley, we have a zero tolerance policy for prank pulling. Because ultimately, a lot of times, pranks lead to hurt feelings and situations in which individuals feel like they have been wronged. 
Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 through 19, says that like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is a man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. I was only joking. By show of hands, how many of you know what snipe hunting is? And I mean true snipe hunting, Texas style, right? For those of you that don't know, I'll let you in on a secret so you won't allow this prank to be pulled on you. Snipe hunting is where someone takes you out in the country in the dark and they say, we're gonna go hunt for these little birds and all you gotta do is put a little light inside of a bag and they'll, they'll run in there and you'll catch a bird. Well, what's really happening is while well, you go out to put that bag and that flashlight out in the middle of the dark is everybody that took you out there runs off and leaves you there in the middle of the night. Oh, I was only joking. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is one who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Poking at preferences, Ram, Chevy, Dodge. Well, Ram and Dodge are the same. Ram, Chevy, Ford. What about University of Texas, Texas A&M, Astros, Rangers, Cowboys? Well, I mean, the Texans, no, nobody roots for the te- I know, you know. The point is we all have our preferences, right? We all have things that we like, certain styles. Some of us are more organized than others and you look at someone else over here that's not organized and you think I can't believe that they would live that way and sometimes we poke at their preferences. But instead of only being concerned about our own preferences, we need to give preference to one another, Romans chapter 12, verse number 10. And as you think about that, sometimes we think about styles, the clothes that we wear, the way that we wear our hairstyle. Some of us don't even have any hair. As you think about physical appearances, sometimes we poke at each other's physical appearances. Second Kings chapter two, verses 23 through 24, you recall the account of Elisha being made fun of by some young people because of what seems to be his bald head. Go up, you baldy. He ends up sending the, the she-bears to attack them and they, they die that night. It's an interest, interesting story. But as you think about physical appearances and the benign ways that we tear each other down, we all know that we're not supposed to make fun of each other's skin color. That's, that's wrong, it's sinful, it's evil. We all know we're not supposed to make fun of each other's weight, someone's obesity, that we ought not to point that out. But you know, sometimes there are certain areas of, of our body that, that maybe get a free pass. Like we said, the bald head thing. You know, bald people sometimes joke about that too. But you think about laying that on thick, not only about maybe the bald head, but maybe the big nose. Or, or maybe it's the pasty white skin. Just, man, you're blinding me, right? And it can be funny. It can be funny, but over time, you keep pouring it on, it can become old, it can sting, it can get annoying. So we need to think about the benign ways in which we tear each other down, being pranks, poking at physical preferences, physical appearances, also shortcomings and inabilities. Leviticus 19, verse number 14, there's this interesting command that is given in the law, which says that you are not to put a stumbling block before the blind, nor to curse the deaf. Now, I don't know why God ever thought that there was a need to command people not to trip blind people and to not curse deaf people, but it's there. And the only reason I can feel and find or think in my mind for why God would command that or need to say that is because sometimes people get a kick out of making fun of people with disabilities and problems and and shortcomings. That it's funny to watch someone blind to trip over something as as though it were the case. Now, I think most of us probably would never do something like that 
But it's pretty common for us to make fun of each other for the way that we throw a ball or the way that we uh, maybe have some handwriting issues or maybe the way that we stumble over our words. Have you ever thought about the fact that it is terrifying for someone to come up and speak before a crowd of individuals in some regards? And it may be the case that someone will never do that because they've been made fun of time and time again for the stuttering and stammering that sometimes happens out of their mouth. We also need to think about the fact that sometimes we make light of conscience issues. Over the past few years at nauseam, we've talked about the, the mask issue and vaccine issue, and sometimes we make light of that. But maybe it's the case that in some regards, you don't let your children do X, Y, or Z because it's a conscience issue for them, for you, and someone teases you about that. Or maybe for you, it's, it's a conscience issue that, that you can't do this over here or, or practice this particular thing. Or maybe, maybe you like to homeschool your children and, and maybe someone teases you about being a homeschooler. There's ways in which conscience issues can be made light of that lead individuals to constantly pour on those people and they can get old. So think about Romans chapter 14, verse number 20. Paul says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. In other words, talking about those Christians, these new Christians who were Gentiles or were having a problem with other individuals eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, he says, if it's a conscience issue, don't destroy them because you have the right to do that. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, he says, I have the right to do some things, but not all things edify, he says in that verse. We need to make sure that what we are doing is for the purpose of edification. Word number two, the word exhort. We've considered edify, now consider the word exhort. The word exhort is brought to our attention, especially in Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 13, in which the the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage some individuals that were struggling in their walk of faith that wondered whether or not Jesus was the one they should really follow after. And he tells them, in order to stay faithful, you need to be exhorting one another daily. What does that mean? Sometimes it's translated encourage, comfort, or exhort, as we said, or beseech. The idea is it literally means to call someone alongside of you or to bring near, much like a a father calls his son or daughter to their side to teach them or to encourage them or to, to build them up, to embolden them. And so, whereas the first one was to, to build someone up to, to help them uh, maybe not tear them down, to feel, to feel good about themselves, this one may be like, likened to giving someone courage. Sometimes we think about that word encourage being patting them on the back. We've used, used this illustration before where sometimes encouragement is an individual that's cowering away from something that is, is fearful. Maybe it's the case of living the Christian life. And encouragement is saying, I'm going to push your back up to help you to stay focused on the task at hand, to give you courage to face that fearful thing. And so exhortation, encouragement, being the same thing. So how do we encourage? Be like Peter. In Acts chapter two and verse number 40, at the end of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he offers hope. He offers hope. You know, he excoriates the Jews in that particular uh, sermon for the fact that they killed Jesus, but he doesn't end the sermon with that. After they ask men and brethren, what shall we do? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. And then at verse number 40, he goes on, it goes on to record for us that he testified and 
exhorted them with many other words. And it's then in verse 41 that they are baptized, some 3,000 of them. They're added to the church. So offer hope, exhort to encourage, to help them to see that there is hope. Offer other individuals hope by the way that you talk to them. Beg people to avoid sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 11, the word exhort, I exhort you is translated in the New King James, I beg you to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Encourage, exhort people to abstain from that which is sinful. Be like Barnabas. Encourage new Christians. In Acts chapter 11, verse number 23, the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to Antioch to encourage those that were new Christians. You know, sometimes when we hear the name Barnabas, we associate it with the name Paul. Paul was maybe the one that was the, 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 the person that we look at as, as being maybe the speaker or the, the teacher more often than not. And Barnabas was his partner, his sidekick, the Robin to the Batman, if you will. But what I want us to think about is that as we're going through evangelism in sync, maybe you're not someone that's yet confident in leading a Bible study, but you can exhort and encourage new Christians by the way that you talk to them, the way that you build them up and, and love on them and, 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 and enjoy being in their presence, much like Barnabas did in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. Be like Paul, remain faithful in your own trials. Consider with me, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter number 14, it's interesting to see that in this particular situation, Paul is stoned for preaching the gospel at Lystra. In Acts chapter 14, verse number 19, he leaves that city, verse number 20, and goes to preach somewhere else. But after preaching in Derby, verse 21, he comes back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And he goes on to say, he comes back there to the place of his stoning, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue, encouraging them to continue in faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You can exhort and encourage others by remaining faithful in your own trials. It's encouraging to see, as John's talked about before, individuals walking in with their walkers, individuals that are dealing with cancer treatments, being here and encouraging us and remaining faithful even in your own trials and not just health issues, but also family issues and all kinds of other issues that exist in the world because of sin. Remaining faithful despite those things encourages others, exhorts others. Speak of the comfort that you've received. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul talks about the fact that God had given them comfort, had comforted them and encouraged them despite what he'd gone through, and he prayed that they would also have that, that comfort as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 11 from our scripture reading this evening comes at the tail end of Paul encouraging the church at Thessalonica to be people who talked about the coming of the Christ. The second coming, that is, Jesus is coming back for us. We can encourage each other by talking about that. When was the last time that you spent time saying, hey, Lord's coming back soon. We can look forward to that. Be happy about that. That encourages others. Instead, all of these are the inverse. We can discourage by focusing only on the evil of the world instead of the hope that Christ offers. You can be a very discouraging person if all you ever talk about is what's going wrong with the world and what's problematic with the world. 
You can discourage people by criticizing instead of commending new Christians. You can be an individual that discourages by only complaining about the difficulties of Christianity instead of saying, man, this is worth it. Despite what I have to go through, my tribulations, my trials, my difficulties, my persecutions, despite all that, I'm still going to remain faithful. That's encouraging. We can discourage people by normalizing sin and watering down its significance. First Peter chapter two, verse 11, which we referenced a moment ago, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. We can really discourage people. And I've talked to people before, when they're new Christians, they look around, they look at their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and they think, why are they engaging in that sin? Why are they actively participating in that which is wrong when even though they know that it's wrong? It's discouraging when people do that. You can also discourage by missing worship services. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the Hebrews writer says that one of our main purposes for coming together as the body, not forsaking the assembly, is exhorting one another, encouraging one another, not only to worship God, but to encourage one another. When we're not here, we can't do that. That's how you can discourage others. Our final word this evening, briefly, the word equip. The word equip The word equip literally means to mend as maybe a net. Matthew chapter four, verse 21, when Jesus called James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he found them mending their nets in their boat. That word mend, it's the same words you find later on in scripture talking about this concept of equipping. Equipping is putting that which is there into the right place and and assisting them to get back into the right form of things. You think about that net. God has placed within us talents and abilities that sometimes we don't feel as though we are yet equipped to do those things because we haven't learned about them yet. And so if we'll but just equip one another and help one another learn certain things, we can build one another up and equip each other. For everyone that is fully trained, Luke 6, verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but when he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher, his father, his master. That word fully trained, perfected, complete. That's the concept of equipment. To be readied for ministry, Ephesians chapter four, verse number 12. At the end of Ephesians four, verses 12 and uh, 13, we find there that some were given to be apostles, some prophets, some teachers, some evangelists, some pastors for the equipping of the saints for ministry readying them for the life of Christ, if you will. So what does equipping look like? It looks like continued teaching of new Christians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 10, Paul tells the church of Thessalonica that he has been praying and longing to see their face so that he might perfect what is lacking in their faith. That word perfect is this word equip that is teaching them those things that they needed to know that they did not yet understand. Even though they were Christians, there were still some things that they needed to be equipped with to help them to grow. Speaking and restoring struggling Christians. In Galatians 6 verse one, Paul says that if anyone is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore. That word restore is the word equip. So it's to go to those that are struggling and help to mend them back together to help them to walk faithfully in the Christian life once again. And finally, do not neglect the God-given tool of intercessory prayer. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, and 1 Peter 5, and verse number 10, in both of these cases, the writers of those passages are pinning a prayer 
that God would perfect them, that God would complete them. We need to not only rely upon each other to equip each other, but we also need to make sure we're relying upon God to equip those that need to grow. As you think about all these things, it said that the average individual uses some 7,000 words a day. Now that's a combination of men and women. And so the, the average that they suggest is that for, for ladies it's more closer to maybe eight or 9,000 and for, for men probably closer to maybe four or 5,000 just by nature of, of who we are as how God has made us. But I would suggest as we think about the words that we use as men especially being, having even less words at our disposal each day that you and I need to carefully reflect upon what we're saying that we not only show love by jabbing and teasing one another in playful jest, but that especially we show love through edification, through exhortation, and through equipping one another. This evening, if that's something you're struggling with, as I have already attested to my struggle with, maybe we can help you this evening. Maybe you're not a Christian and you wanna be more like Jesus and you wanna have your sins washed away. If there's anything that we can do for you this evening, we ask that you come as together we stand and as we sing. Just a couple of words about this weekend and about the coming weekend.